Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. Today on the show, we're going to talk a little about Goss's wilt in corn, but we would be happy to discuss anything that's going on on your farm. Our phone number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can email us, radio at agphd.com, or send us a note on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. So Darren and I were just outside doing a bunch of filming and <clears throat> have to clear my throat after that, Darren. And getting some fresh air is pretty nice after, you know, it, it seems like everybody's been on lockdown, been in quarantine, got to stay inside, all this kind of stuff. It's going to be so nice and we can start planting on our farm, which which hopefully is going to happen yet this week. That would be great. And our topic today is Goss's wilt in corn. And you may think, well, we are going to see Gosses show up for several months that's great. I hope we don't see it show up at all. But the planning for how to stop it on your farm or at least minimize the impact of Goss's wilt, it starts right now. It starts with seed selection. And one of the things that got this topic to the forefront for us is just switching hybrids. Well, you may have heard from your seed dealer recently, oh, Yep, we had a hybrid that didn't make germ, or we had a hybrid that got oversold, or we don't have the right seed size for you, and we need to switch you into something else. That's fine. We have no issue with that. There's no one hybrid on our farm that, oh, no, our our program's all shot because we can't put that one hybrid on. Give me a break. If you're planting three, four, five, six hybrids, whatever it is, we'll probably plant at least 10 you just don't have to worry about one hybrid or another. It's not that big a deal, except for this. We want to make sure that we've got good defense in the areas that we can't protect in crop. And earlier today, we were having a discussion about fungicide use in corn and, and which products to use and when and all this kind of thing. Well, fungicides do nothing for bacterial diseases like Goss's wilt. Goss's wilt, you need to have tolerance in your hybrid. That's your best bet for protecting your crops. So if you're switching and you said, okay, I had a great hybrid for gosses, what am I going to get in replacement of that? Don't just look at yield data and say, oh yeah, that one yields just fine. No, make sure that you get the defensive traits that you need like goss as well. So since this is a bacteria and I mean, then obviously fungicides aren't going to work. We do get a lot of questions about, well, how about a bacteria side? Unfortunately, there just aren't any products where we say, yep, we can consistently tell you this is going to give you a great return. So I'm not telling you there are zero bactericides out there. And I would also say to take that a step further, there are some people who will use, let's say, copper products, for example, to control different diseases out there. So that can actually sometimes kill some bacteria, some fungus, a whole bunch of stuff when you throw copper out there foliar. But to to think that we're going to perfectly time an application of anything to give us enough suppression on Goss's wilt that it's going to pay for that treatment and the application, unfortunately, we're just not confident enough to do that with anything at this point. So like Darren said, your best bet is variety selection. Now, beyond that, we always want to look at, hey, if we could do some tillage out there, if we can simply rotate, if we don't go corn on corn, then we have a better chance. If you have the right fertility, and that's not just N, P, and K, I'm talking everything. We want to have good soil pH. We want to have good levels of sulfur, all the micronutrients. You know, we do all those things. And I mean, it's just like human health. If we are super healthy, we're going to be much more tolerant to any disease. 
with plants. If they are super healthy, then hopefully they're going to be a little more tolerant to gas as well. And even if they get it, maybe it's not a 50 bushel yield loss, it's a 5 or 10 bushel yield loss. You know, and that's a heck of a lot better than having some disaster out there. You know, when you talk to corn breeders, one of the the things that they'll talk about is whatever one singular focus they have right now. I visited with a corn breeder here this fall, and he said physoderma is a big concern for him. He's seen more and more of that across the corn belt and spreading. Still not the biggest problem out there, but it's one that's growing in impact, so they're trying to get ahead of it. Goss's wilt is is the big, big problem that about 20 years ago, the breeders really started focusing hard on, shifting a lot of their efforts towards finding the best Goss's tolerance they could find and breeding that into elite genetics. So it's one of those things, there are quite a few choices now, even compared to five to 10 years ago, the tolerance is much, much stronger, and if you're getting a hybrid with average tolerance by today's standards, that's not too bad, unless you're going into a heavy, heavy pressure area and corn on corn and those kinds of things. But the, the tolerances are getting better. The other thing is just to pay attention to all those other cultural things that, that we've been talking about here, that if you're in a corn on corn situation, Goss as well, it's going to survive in that residue. So it's going to lead to more chances of impact in the next crop. So be aware of that. A lot of farmers will say doing tillage, doing anything that helps that residue break down a little faster has had an impact for them. But if you get the right weather conditions and you've got lots of inoculum present and you get some damage to your corn plant from wind or hail or whatever, it's just pretty tough to protect that crop 100%. That's why this tolerance is so critical. With Goss's wilt, Darren, do you think that we're going to have more or less because of the way the year went last year? Personally, I don't think we're going to have as much because I think corn acres were way overstated last year. What we had out there wasn't nearly as good. There wasn't as much residue. Now, was there more disease last year? Yes, there was. So, I, I mean, I could maybe see it go the other way, but I think we're going to see a lot of these guys who are thinking continuous corn, they're going to switch over and plant a lot more beans. There's no possible chance we're going to have 97 million acres like the, the report came out with the other day. I'd say 87 would be a lot closer than the 97. By the time it's all said and done this year, a lot of guys are going to go soybeans. So I don't think we're going to have near the problem this year, but what do you think? I agree. I think we were setting ourselves up for a big challenge when we looked at all the intended acres for corn on corn. But just talking to farmers around the country like we get to do on this show each weekday, we're hearing more farmers backing off on the corn acres, switching to, in some cases, other crops, especially once you get out of the corn belt. There are some contracts out there that are offering growers opportunities to make some money raising different things. So... I'm glad when they take that because that just allows more corn to grow in the corn belt. But even in the corn belt, I think there's a, a shift to soybean acres too, as you mentioned. We'll talk about Goss's wilt and corn on today's program. Also take your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. Your grain bin fans can cost you a lot. High electric bills from running when conditions are not ideal, shrinkage from overdried grain, and spoiled grain all take money out of your pocket. With the STEPS GMS app temperature humidity switch, get your bin fans to start making you money. Only run vans when the conditions are right. Eliminate shrink and spoilage in your bins. Deliver grain in top condition at market moisture. When every dollar counts, you need STEPS GMS. Contact us today at stepsgms.com. Your land is a legacy, a challenge from those who tended it before you. 
to build on their foundations. At Corteva AgriScience, we understand what it means to be the stewards of a legacy. We embrace the challenge of building on the foundation of Dow AgroSciences to maintain your trust, to bring new solutions, to help you care for your land. See how we can help build your legacy at rangeandpasture.com. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy. All the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Ideal for herbicide applications, the Ultra Low Drift's large air inducted droplets were designed to eliminate driftable fines without sacrificing coverage. Its thick three-dimensional pattern creates multiple angles for the spray to cover the target. Hypro, helping you spray better. How much yield did you lose the moment you planted your seed? Introducing the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Designed and built by a farmer tired of seeing yield loss from poor stands, the Germinator gives your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Visit farmshopmfg.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're really excited to be talking about corn and some of the things that are going to happen in crop. I can't wait to get some corn planted, hopefully later this week on our farm. Hopefully things are going well for you, too, as you get started into corn planting. One of the big considerations that you have, choosing the right seed for the right acre is getting good gosses, wilt tolerance in your hybrid. But it's really important that you understand this disease as well. So we've got the expert on. We've got Dr. Tamara Jackson-Zims with the University of Nebraska. Tamara, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. When you think about gosses, wilt, what are the important things for growers to understand about this disease? Whew, there's quite a few, but... You know, one thing this time of year, I like to remind people that that disease, or at least the bacteria that cause it, they're still out there. And even if you haven't had Goss's wilt in one or two or five years, it's still there. And we can't take the risk of planting a susceptible hybrid out there. I agree. This is one of the things that, as I'm talking with farmers about, they're very, very conscious of this. If Hey, if I had a problem in one field... I just consider my whole farm at risk, and I want to make sure I don't get that started anywhere else. How does it move around from field to field? We know that the bacteria overwinter inside and on infected residue, and so that debris is still there year after year, and so you're especially at high risk if you're in continuous corn. And that makes it even more important to select a resistant hybrid. So crop rotation can help. Uh, people who use tillage, it, it might help too, but ne- neither of those are going to completely eliminate the risk. So we have to do as much as we can, a combination of those, to mitigate those those risks of disease. Is this something where you recommend to farmers that they clean tillage equipment or clean harvesting equipment between fields? You know, I, I never think it's a bad idea to do some sanitation or, you know, adjust the order of the fields that you're going to be working in and save the ones that you know were affected till last. And so that that's definitely an option. We should keep in mind, too, there's other risk factors that, that we create for ourselves. And so if you uh, 
have cattle on some of those uh, acres in the winter time, and maybe you're moving bales around or bailing up bales or buying them from somewhere else, you, you never know what you're bringing in with those. And so I'd keep that in mind, and you can reduce risk by strategically selecting which fields that goes on. All right, I got a number of questions. Um, I'm thinking about treatments because you've mentioned this is a problem that could live out in fields for five years, maybe even more, and show up in corn at any point that it gets the right opportunity. Are there treatments that are showing promise? Are you seeing greatly improved tolerance in hybrids? What's really working? The thing that's really working are hybrids. And we've got really good resistance to this disease, and so it, it's really worth your time working with your seed company agronomist to make a good selection. As far as treatments, you know, we, we always think of things, what can I spray on it to fix this? And there just hasn't been a good solution for that. You know, fungicides work great for fungal diseases. They don't work on bacterial diseases like this one, though. And even some of the bactericides, like ones that contain copper, they haven't usually been economical for use in corn because you usually have to repeatedly make those applications. And so the the number one recommendation would be selection of your hybrid. Now, one thing we hear a lot about is just if you are prone to having some damage out in the field, like maybe you've got sandy ground and you get some, some sand blowing through the field or you have hail or just even heavy winds, uh, those are all factors that we know are more at risk of getting a disease into the plant. What about mechanical damage? Do you see that as being a, a real concern for farmers that they're damaging the corn driving through the fields late? I think any kind of damage would open up that wound and, and allow that to occur. I guess it might depend on what kind of damage and, and when. You know, the plants are in general more vulnerable when they're small, you know, by about V6 be seven or so and we know in those cases for example when they get a hail event sometimes we have systemic disease develop that can even kill some of those plants that's more common say in the western great plains like out in western nebraska historically i guess i don't have good examples though where we've documented mechanical injury but i think it's definitely possible all right with uh, the residue supporting the bacteria and this inoculum left out in our fields. Can we get rid of it with deep tillage? Is there anything else culturally that we could do for it? Well, for sure we know whatever you can do to degrade that residue faster helps. But we also know there's some penalties to that, right? And there's some effects on soil and, of course, there's cost to uh, tillage, too. And so while that might help, it might be a short-term effect. And so uh, we, uh, we know, though, historically, it, it can help. And so uh, I, I'd still start with your number one and select those resistant hybrids. Just to understand this disease a little bit more, again, we're talking with Dr. Tamara Jackson-Zims with the University of Nebraska. Just to understand the disease a little bit more, if it's in the residue and we plant corn, when does it actually move and how does it move into the plants? Hmm. Good question. So bacteria tend overwinter in and on residue, and it can be splashed around, for instance, by rainfall or irrigation. And so as soon as those plants are emerged, 
they have the potential to already have the bacteria on them. And so we always talk about wounding because for this pathogen, that's the number one way that it, that it gets inside and infects. There's also the potential, though, that even without a wound, the bacteria can infect through the natural openings in the leaves. And so we, we do see that some, and we've documented that in, in greenhouse studies. And so that might help explain why you might see some disease, even if you didn't believe you had any hail or very much wind. And so as the season goes on, uh, when you have splashing and wind blown, that's how it moves around in the field. And so uh, there's been good documentation from our colleagues at Iowa State that bacteria can even live on the surface of these plants for quite some time while they're alive in the field before we ever see disease, if at all. And so just keep that in mind, you know, we're moving as we're moving the residue around. When we see gosses wilt out in fields, we know if it comes a little earlier in the season, we've got more potential for yield loss. How big is the yield loss in fields that you've seen? Oh, well, there's some pretty outlandish estimates out there, but we know in parts of fields we've seen 50% or more yield loss. Most of the time, that's when we've had a high mortality rate, you know, when plants become infected early and they die. And then you can get some secondary problems where you have uh, no more canopy closure and you have some weed patches develop. But the um, in general, you know, we see something like this, average 10 or 15 percent if it's only on the leaves widespread across a field and so it can be quite serious in a, especially in a susceptible hybrid but even in a in a hybrid that's resistant or pretty tolerant if you have a pretty significant hail event it can override and you can see some disease in that we we don't really have immunity necessarily like uh, what people might assume resistance might imply well, Tamara, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on, talking a little about Goss's wilt today again with Tam, Dr. Tamara Jackson-Zims with the University of Nebraska. Uh, good luck going into this season and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Everybody else, too. All right. With Goss's wilt, it's the worst bacterial disease that we see in season in corn. It's one that we have many growers across the country talking to us about. How can we better manage that? This is one of those experts that you want to read more from. She does a lot of work studying this, and the pathology department at Nebraska is really good. Brian, you had mentioned, too, like if anybody's going to know about gosses, it's it better be somebody in Nebraska. It's generally more of a problem there than almost anywhere else. Well, unfortunately, but that does seem to be moving around the country. We've even found Goss's wilt up in North Dakota, for example, which a lot of people didn't think, oh, it's not going to spread that far north. Nope. It's been way up in North Dakota, for example. So I don't care where you are. We've always got to be aware of all these different pathogens that are out there, both fungal and bacterial. Well, we'll continue talking about Goss's wilt, and we'll get to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag. That's all coming up on Ag PhD Radio. Hey, Bill, any advice to control tough weeds and rootworms? That's easy, Jim. Buy two, save three. Wait, for weeds and rootworms? Buy two, save three. Combine your Impact or new Impact Z herbicide purchase with a qualifying insecticide and save $3 per acre. Buy two, save three. That is good advice. For details, go to buy2save3.com. Impact, Impact Z, and Buy Two Save Three are trademarks owned by Amvac Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. 
Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic herbicides from Atticus LLC. Tough broadleaf weeds are a hassle, but they're no match for Cavallo from Atticus. Cavallo delivers fast, contact, and residual control so your corn, soybean, and sorghum crops can thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Challenging field conditions often make harvest difficult. Can your corn head handle it? The GTS X10 corn head from Agra US is a rugged, cost-effective alternative to heavier, more traditional heads. Constructed of durable yet lightweight aluminum, the X10 puts less strain on your combine without losing harvest effectiveness. And it is 40% lighter than traditional heads, reducing field compaction in those less than ideal conditions. For more information, give us a call at 8334-AGRA US. This is a seed bag. This bag is made of craft paper with a cellophane liner and provides nothing for seed growth. This is a seed bed. It was prepared with Case IH soil management tools. It optimizes everything from nutrient access to water infiltration to create the perfect environment for early uniform emergence. Get to know why your seed bed drives productivity at caseih.com slash soil management. Before it's too late and white mold becomes a problem, you need to ask your seed dealer for Heads Up Seed Treatment. When raising soybeans in the Midwest, you know the risk of being caught unprepared. As heard on Ag PhD, there are several steps you can take prior to planting for a successful management plan against white mold. Compatible and cost-effective season-long protection starts now by asking your seed dealer to apply Heads Up to your 2020 bean seed order. For more information, visit HeadsUpST.com. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky Herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Gooseneck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at OpenSkyHerbicide.com. We are talking about Goss's Wilton Corn on today's Ag PhD radio show. Thanks for listening today. If you would like to be part of the show, if you'd like to talk about this problem or just any agronomic question you may have, our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can email us radio at agphd.com. All right, I mentioned Nebraska has some challenges with Goss as well. So does Iowa, and we've got Ryan on with us right now to talk about that a little bit too. Ryan, how's it going? How soon uh, will you guys be rolling out in the field in your area? I'm sitting in the tractor putting in hydros on right now. Excellent. Excellent. So how soon do you plant? Do you have a, a certain date on the calendar you won't go before here, or do you look at soil temp, or how do you judge when the start time is? We usually start around the 15th, depending on what uh, what the weather looks like. So, But there's there's corn in the ground right now around us. So uh, there'll be some, but the extended forecast doesn't look uh, very warm. So I don't know what, when we'll get started. Yeah, it doesn't. There's a few nice days here and then a little challenge again. But you said corn in the ground. My brother just lit up. He's all excited. He's he's fired up to get <laughs> out there too. <laughs> well, I always tease him. He's He was born in Iowa. So maybe that's part of it, that he's got to yep. keep up with everybody in Iowa. 
Uh, all right, so talk to us about Goss as well. Do you see much in your area, and, and what do you do to combat it? So I don't know. It's been probably six, seven, probably eight years now. We had it terrible uh, in quite a few fields that we were going back to corn on corn on, and uh, it cost us 100 bushel. Wow. Uh, the acre, those two years in a row there. And uh, so this, I don't, I'm also a seed dealer, so I don't sell anything that I remotely have a chance of getting Goss in it. I have a, a Goss trial on one of our farms, so they do some research stuff on it, and uh, I don't, I don't risk it after the um, being around it. No, that's for sure. Did did it change your rotation or on any of your fields? Do you say ah, I'm going to really be careful on that one field more than another one, or did it just change the practice for for hybrid selection across the board? Hybrid hybrid selection was the biggest key. Um, just getting stuff that was uh, way better on it than what we were planting. So. What are, what are any of the other defensive traits that you're looking for on hybrids? You've got a lot of corn acres, and, and certainly as a seed dealer, you're talking to a lot of other farmers about it. Are there some other things they're really concerned about in your area? Oh, you know, most of the corn on corn around here, everything gets a um, rootworm control, and uh, most, most of the guys are planting a smart stack on the corn on corn. Sure, sure. Do you see secondary insects as being a challenge there as well? Oh, it, it depends on the year. Every year is different. Um, you never know. You never know what's going to pop up. Yeah, it's it's a challenge, no doubt about it. I, I know for our farm too. You just can't anticipate a year like 2019, and and certainly bugs are very unpredictable out there too. You're, you're putting in hydrosun now. Talk to us about your nitrogen program as well. Is that the one shot for some heavy ground, or do you come back and side dress later on? Uh, we put. Uh, anhydrous pre-plant and then i'll come back right before i or plant and uh, spray another 10 gallon with the chemical yeah we're seeing that being more common now we're we're doing the same thing on a lot of acres where we're not maybe not getting it all down brian likes to put as much as he can on some of this heavy ground we're typically dry but then of course you get a year every once in a while like 2019 that brings a reality check that that certainly you can lose some of that if you get it out early as well talking with ryan down yeah, we might we, oh good yeah, we might try some urea this year. I'm in narrow rows. There's not much chance of side dressing, so okay, we might uh, broadcast some urea over the top. Interesting. Yeah, lots of different ways to do it, no doubt about that. But with this goss as well that we're talking about, uh, Ryan brought the, the point forward. you got to do it with the hybrid. you got to have good stuff out there or it's going to be a real challenge. Uh, Ryan, good luck to you. Glad to hear you're out in the field, and hopefully the weather passes and you're able to get that corn in the ground soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, said back to Iowa, we've got Dr. Allison Robertson with us right now with Iowa State. Allison, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Well, I don't know if you're going to thank us because our topic is Goss's <laughs> Wilt, and other than hybrid selection that Ryan brought up, do you have any other good tips for us on, on how we can best manage it? Nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> hybrid, hybrid is the best way to go. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing you could do is crop rotation right um allow that residue to break down in the field so that can help a little bit but um as many of your listeners know here in the midwest um you know you might rotate to soybean but your neighboring uh, a field or you might rotate to corn from soybean to corn but that field will be neighboring a field that has corn residue so um yeah i i don't so rotation won't really help in that aspect, right? Because you can still get that 
bacterium coming from the residue in the neighboring field and splashing onto, um, splashing or um, being dispersed by the wind onto your field, onto that neighboring field. Now, I know, Allison, that fungicides aren't going to do any good stopping a bacteria, yes. but can keeping that plant healthy, can that, that build up the tolerance a little bit or, or allow the plant to handle a little bit of pressure without as much damage or injury? Um, it's possible, you know. I mean, I would say just like us, the healthier we are, the better able we are to fight an infection. And so it's similar for um, for for plants with diseases. Um, there's been some work done looking at, you know, micronutrients and then macronutrients. But, I mean, I just, I came on just as you and Ryan were talking about nitrogen. So one of the things that we observed, but we never actually um, did any um, scientific tests on, was that plants that have, that have higher nitrogen, so um, are going to be more susceptible to the disease. And so we know that with some diseases that high nitrogen is going to make diseases, um, can ex exacerbate diseases. Low nitrogen can also exacerbate other diseases. So just managing your, your nutrition of that crop in the field um, to, so it's optimum condition. You're not going overboard on, on one side or the other um, can help um, just reduce the amount of disease. Ryan talked about getting out in the field a little later with an application of nitrogen. He was talking about broadcasting, but I also see a mm -hmm. lot of guys wide dropping and, and side dressing in various different methods. When we're driving through the crop, there is the potential for creating some injury there. And I know yes. we hear a lot about injury to the plant being mm -hmm. a, a big watch out. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, any injury that you do to that plant... And remember that, I mean, a lot of times we see um, injury, we think of injury as in like hail damage, right, where the, where the leaves are ripped apart. But with Goss's wilt, um, even any superficial injury on that leaf, so something that you can't really notice, um, can still create enough of a wound for that bacterium to get in. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the more you, you drive through those fields and, you know, brush those leaves against each other or against machinery, you could be creating these superficial wounds that will allow that bacterium to enter. Talking with Dr. Allison Robertson at Iowa State. Allison, so we mentioned choosing hybrids that have good gosses tolerance. Are there other diseases in your state that you're recommending growers really be careful about hybrid selection that they get good ones tolerant to certain things? Yeah, I mean, definitely bacterial diseases. We have to rely on that, right? Gray leaf spot, I mean, gray leaf spot, gosses wilt or um, uh, bacterial leaf streak, right? When it comes to fungal diseases, um, I mean, I always like to advise growers start with a hybrid that has good resistance. But I, you know, I totally get as well that a hybrid that has good resistance to gray leaf spot or northern corn leaf blight might not have the yield potential that you're after. And we do have the um, ability to go in and manage those diseases later on in the season with a fungicide if we want to, right? But, I mean, it's just a, it's a grower's decision. You know, do you want to plant something that's resistant to the disease and then not have to worry about a fungicide later, but realize that you may take a yield, a little bit of a yield knock with that? Or do you want to plant something with, very high yield potential, and then come in with a fungicide if you need it. 
Yeah, it's just a challenge that, that we don't yeah. have all yeah, that in just, the same hybrid that oh, this is the best yielding <laughs> thing in the in the world and resistant yeah, to everything, yeah. but just doesn't yeah. always play out that way. Hey, uh, Allison, yeah. thank you so much. Really appreciate you joining us today, and good luck you're heading into the spring. Yes, thank you, and to everyone else out there as well. Thank you. Talking about Goss's wilt on today's program, but also taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy. All the way down to the last drop. Agroliquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Closing the seed trench behind the planter is essential to establishing yields in the fall. Introducing the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Designed and built by a farmer who is tired of seeing poor stands because of uneven emergence, the Germinator is here to give your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. For more information, visit us at farmshopmfg.com. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's Mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm the fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. Come on in. The Ag PhD Mailbag is about to begin. If you'd like to get your question in, it's radio at agphd.com, or you can call us 844-44-AG-PHD. This one comes from Troy, 
and he asks, hey, I've got a field that I sampled on one-acre grids. It's corn-on-corn, disc tillage, and it's irrigated. Now, it's seen a fair amount of cattle manure over the years. I live in Nebraska, and I'm curious, what would you do to get the best yield in terms of fertility here? And by the way, he says, I think I need potassium, sulfur, manganese, and boron, maybe a little phosphorus. All right, so, Troy, here's the thing. I'm looking at your soil tests, and... (laughs) For anybody who hears us talk about soil tests quite often on the show, what's the first thing we usually talk about? I mean, not specifically in the soil test, but we say there's a lot of variability in your soil tests. So just to give you an example here, he's got, uh, and he mentioned, I think I might need some phosphorus. Okay, so he's got one spot in particular where he's got high pH, so we look at the Olson test. He only has nine parts per million. Well, nine parts per million isn't going to get you a whole lot of corn. Then he's got other spots where he's got pH that's lower, so we look at the Bray tests, and he's got one where he has 96 parts per million of P1, so that's fantastic, and 139 parts per million in the P2 test. So my point here is, Yes, this is a field that you did one-acre grids on, and now can you see why we say at least one time do one-acre grids? Because if you can solve some of this variability, well, you're going to solve some of your variability when it comes to yield. So, yeah, we want absolutely want you to get that phosphorus up in those areas where you do have lower phosphorus. So basically anything below 50 parts per million on phosphorus, I'm probably looking pretty hard at, yeah, I need phosphorus. Every spot in the field, just about, is too low on potassium. Now, the parts per million aren't horrible. I mean, you got in the hundreds, two hundreds, whatever, for the most part, but you have so much magnesium and calcium out there, you don't have enough potassium in ratio. The base saturation tests, for the most part, are in the twos and threes. That's not going to cut it. You got to at least get into the fours and fives if you want good yields. In terms of Let's see, he mentioned manganese. Yep, that's a little on the low side. I'm not super worried about the manganese, but yep, that you, you definitely need some. If you have high levels of phosphorus, you also, to go along with that, need high levels of zinc. So, you, so I don't think he mentioned zinc. Uh, let me look back one more time. Nope, I don't see anything about zinc. But where you've got 100 parts per million of phosphorus, you probably better get up to 10-ish parts per million on zinc. So you got some areas where we absolutely would recommend some zinc. Your copper is all pretty much less than two parts per million. I would start bumping the copper just a little bit. Cheap, easy to do. Boron. You need a lot of boron because, I mean, you got to be a little bit careful about how you're applying boron all the time. But for the most part, you have fairly good calcium levels. I'm not super worried about putting boron out. But we got a lot of these tests that are half a part per million, 0.3 parts per million, 0.4 parts per million. That is not going to do it if you want good yields. So, yep, got a lot of things to work on. And you also did mention sulfur. Absolutely, you need a bunch of sulfur. A lot of these in the single digits for sulfur, that, that that's not even close. So, yeah, you got a lot of things to address here. And I will be honest, when you say it has had a fair amount of manure in the past, from what it looks like to me, a lot of that manure went in a few spots in the field and it wasn't consistently applied across the field. So that's just what it appears to me. And it also doesn't look like it was way overdone on manure because I see very little other than some, you know, we got some spots where the phosphorus is good. Almost everything else is not where we would want to see it. So you need more phosphorus in a lot of spots. You need more potassium in almost everything. You need sulfur. You need uh, zinc. You need a little manganese. You need a little bit of copper and you need some boron. And the last thing I guess I'd throw out that we always start with in the beginning is on the pH side. You're probably looking at the pH 
wild variability here, all the way from 5.5 on the low side to 8 on the high side. And some of these might be just a one grid point or two away. So be real careful about what you're doing for applying any elemental sulfur on the high pH side and applying lime on the low pH side. Just don't overdo it in the beginning. All right, thanks for the email, Brian. You gotta love Brian's recommendations. They're they're thorough, not cheap, not inexpensive, but you know this is investment for a long time on your farm. And once you get many of these levels up, like on a lot of these micronutrients and on P and K and so forth, many soils and most soils are going to hold them fairly well. And as you so bring that up, profit these, for years this was come. heavy soil, and I should have mentioned that right from the outset. 20 to 25 cation exchange capacity. So yeah, it's not going anywhere if he puts out his P and K and a lot of the different nutrients. All right. Uh, I get an email here from Paul and he said, I want to learn more about strip till. Really appreciated your in-depth explanation. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate that. It's always good to get feedback like that. Got an email from Joe. He said, I also grew up as a South Dakota farm boy and South Dakota State University grad. Hey, go Jacks, Joe. Uh, he said, I hated you guys for a long time because I was competing against you in many ways, but I love your show and especially appreciate your safety with farm vehicles talk. I'm retired now. Would love to chat with you someday. Hey, thanks, Joe. Really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Our number one focus really needs to be on safety. And here we go. We're heading into a planting season. You guys are already, as we talked to Ryan today, he was out in the tractor in the field applying anhydrous. Really important to, to stay safe out there. Well, especially right now when we're distracted. Okay, let's face it. Kids are at home. There's no school. There are, we're out of sync compared to what we normally do. Everybody's talking about the whole COVID-19 thing, which is fine. I'm glad we're talking about that and focused on that. But we can't forget about the basics of farm safety and farm equipment safety. All right. Uh, I got some feedback from Tim. He said, I'm listening to you on Sirius XM radio. I'm not farming anymore, but use your soil tips like improving high pH soils for my lawn now. Hey, thanks, Tim. Really appreciate that. Yeah, even if you're not farming anymore, we, we talk to a lot of folks that grew up on a farm or, or used to visit farms with their grandparents or something like that, and they, they often enjoy that. I right, got a question here from Michael. He said, you were talking about how much fertilizer you could put in furrow on a, a recent post here, but I'm wondering how much fertilizer can you apply in a two by two? Can you get most of what goes on for the crop year or can you only put a small portion on? Yeah, you can put quite a bit out there, a lot more than you can put in furrow. But as we say that, this is, I believe, Darren, why I think a lot of the high yield guys talk about two by two by two. That means doing a two by two on both sides of the row. Because when you start bumping the rate, and especially in lighter soils, then you can end up with some crop injury. So by splitting it, well, now you can put half on each side. You have half the chance, or probably even a lot less than that, to burn off any roots and I would just encourage you when you are bumping it on rates to the point where you think yeah I wonder if this is hurting anything dig around in the soil a little bit you can see pretty quickly if a root get bur gets burned off or not all right got a couple of questions here from Jordan I said I'm a dry land farmer in southwest Colorado raising mainly winter wheat and safflower the old farmers in our area believe in not fertilizing and fallowing ground to mineralize nutrients and save soil moisture. We have heavy ground that the old timers believe can only work in conventional till systems. We average 14 to 16 inches of precip. Do you think it would pay to try and crop every year 
rather than sticking to the fallow system? The other question that I have is about prairie dogs. They are wiping out hundreds of acres. We're using fumatoxin and hunting to try to control them, but it's very time-consuming with lots of acres to cover. Do you know anything less uh, or more time-efficient and less labor-intensive to try and control the prairie dogs as well? Well, first of all, whenever we talk about anything like moles, prairie dogs, anything that's going to live on your ground, you got to think about what is their food? What do they like to eat? Well, from what I understand, prairie dogs like to eat grass. They like to eat grasses. So if it's me, I might work on having a lot more broad leaves in the rotation if I possibly can. And maybe that ends up helping. I don't know if it will or not. We fortunately don't have to deal with prairie dogs. I do know that things like fumatoxin are ridiculously dangerous. So be really super careful if you're using that. In terms of are you going to be ahead to go continuous crop or not, it's tough. In that area, there's not a lot of humidity. And the humidity is the thing that always saves us. We have tremendous humidity. We're more humid than Miami, Florida. In eastern South Dakota, you think about that, because usually people say, oh, it's really dry. No, we're more humid a lot of years than Miami, Florida. We have tremendous humidity. We just don't have a lot of rainfall. We can get by raising great crops without a lot of rainfall because we have that humidity. So if it was me, I would try it, but I'm probably going to stick more to small grains if it wasn't the prairie dog issue. It's just a real challenge in your area with a lack of rain and lack of, lack of humidity. Well, we'll get to more of your questions right after this. High-yield corn growers know that feeding the crop and soil are keys to maximizing yield potential. Nutex EDA and Reverb are specifically formulated to help manage limiting factors associated with today's farming conditions. Nutex EDA works within the plant to support nutrient mobility and utilization. Reverb focuses on the soil, providing beneficial trace elements which help condition the root zone for optimal microbial activity. Low use rates and superb tank mix compatibility make Nutex EDA and Reverb no-brainers in the high-yield grower toolbox. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Hey Adam, new drone? Not just any drone. I mounted a laser on it to take out weeds. Look out for that tree! In the power line! Oh, it's in for the house. There's a simpler way to protect spring wheat from weeds. Perfect Match Herbicide. The broadest spectrum weed and grass control in one product. Learn more at perfectmatchherbicide.com. Always read and follow label directions. The laser. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System. The system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. Featuring Extendamax herbicide with vapor grip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup ready-to-extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. 
Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. We're right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag. If you'd like to get your question in, it's radio at agphd.com or call us at 844-44-AG-PHD. So back last fall, I met a farmer from Brazil. I was actually over in India, and I met him over there. And he just sent me some soil tests the other day, and he said, Brian, what do you think about this? Now, the good thing was, and it was interesting when I, I had met this guy last fall, Guillaume, he had said... I am at least familiar with Neil Kinsey. Now, I don't remember what our conversation was exactly, but he was asking me a number of different agronomic questions. And so I just said, hey, send me your soil tests. So he sent me the soil tests, and I just wanted to talk about them here on the radio with you today because it is kind of interesting. We get soil tests from all over the world. This is from Brazil, and he is in a soybean cotton rotation. But anyway, these are actually Neil Kinsey tests, so it's great. It's real easy. We don't have any conversions that Darren and I have to make or anything else. So the first thing that probably stands out, and we, we when both Darren and I have been down to Brazil before, Darren's been there a couple times even, there is a lot of soil that is light. And very often we hear from farmers, especially in the Midwestern United States or Southern Canada, that go, man, I wish I could farm in Brazil and raise two crops a year and everything. Yes, you can. But a lot of times you're not dealing with the same kind of soil that we have here, not even close. We have good, heavy soil and we have better soil pH. Now, these the pH really isn't that horrible. It's mid fives, but it's still a little on the low side. So we're going to need some some kind of correction there. But the uh, total exchange capacity around six, seven, eight, something like that. So it's light, relatively sandy soil. Uh, so, Darren, I, I just said there pH is the number one thing that stands out to me. we got to get that up a little bit. And with that, obviously, low calcium and it's a light soil. So what's the first thing that stands out to you when you look at these Brazilian soil tests? Well, what's interesting is these, these tests actually went to Neil Kinsey's lab, and Neil has recommendations here. And this calcium is really important. Yep. And I look at some of the – and he's also short in – in uh, other things too but well, almost everything but p and k and most of the micronutrients and sulfur so yes but yeah i find it interesting that that he's got recommendations for calcium carbonate he's also got rec recommendations for dolomite out there to get some mag magnesium out because we're talking about lighter soils and that's something again that's a little different than what we face on our farm we've got heavy soils with lots of pounds of some of these nutrients where it's going right. to cost just a little bit more to to get some of this done but by the same token you've got some advantages there too so i look at that and, and would really address that calcium and magnesium first but i i looked at a you know across the whole thing there's 
a little bit of everything is needed when you've got those light soils every year. So it doesn't really surprise me. I see sulfur being really low. Of course, you're not going to hold a lot of sulfur in, in lighter soils. And then looking at some of those micronutrients too, it's something where many budgets start with, let's deal with NP and K, or maybe let's do a little bit of liming and then deal with NP and K and then they run out of money and the, the micronutrients are lacking. If that was, if that was the case here where you said, you know, my budget's only going to allow me to put on the NP and K that you're talking about, just take one field and, and cut back on those just a little bit and use that same part of the budget to put some sulfur out in some of the micros because I think you're going to see a real response here. Okay, here's one example. Darren's talking about the budget. Dry fertilizer, pretty low on manganese. And Neil's recommendation here is to throw out 200 pounds of manganese sulfate. 200 pounds of manganese sulfate. Do you know how much 200 pounds costs? Delivered to our farm right now. I was just looking at, at what our fertilizer quotes were for, for this spring. $130 an acre, Darren, to throw 200 pounds out there. Now, how willing are you going to be to throw out $130 worth of manganese sulfate? Not tremendously, <laughs> and, I, and I doubt many people right. would. But I think the thing is here, when you see there's a drastic shortage, maybe there, maybe it was always short for all of history. Maybe it was in balance at one point, and it's just been farmed for a lot of years, and, and the manganese has been mined out. I don't know what the case is, but I would say this. Many of those micros we look at, all right, I'm going to feed the crop this year. I'm going to put something highly available in close proximity to where my root system is going to be, or I'm going to do some foliar feeding and try and get by in some acres. And then maybe I tackle that and say, all right, I need 200 pounds. Well, I'm going to do 20 pounds over the next 10 years, and that might be more palatable for me. It just depends on what your situation is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So beyond that, I guess almost every, literally almost every nutrient here is a little bit short. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I don't know what more to tell you than beyond what Neil has here because almost well, I think, you I need think his recommendations everything. are just right on the money. Yeah. It's just a question of how many dollars are they going to cost and what you can afford to do all at once. That's right. Because, yeah, $130 of manganese sulfate, and I have no idea what that would cost down in Brazil, but I just know for our farm, the economics aren't real great this year. If corn was $7 and I was making all kinds of money and I had extra money in the budget, then fine. Or if I wanted to do it on just a few acres, and and that's probably what I would say, is if nothing else, at least follow the recommendation to a T, spend all this money on just a few acres, and then you can see what a difference there is and see if, well, would that pay next year if I invest some more money? And how long is that going to pay? So you got to do some experimentation on your farm. Now, Darren, one of the other interesting questions that this farmer had asked me is he said, okay, Neil says we should soil sample down to about six inches, but I believe down here in Brazil I should be sampling deeper. Well, look, we do believe in some deeper samples for the leachable nutrients. For nitrogen, sulfur, and boron, I agree with you. You should probably go a little bit deeper. A lot of people in the United States go down to 24 inches for those three leachable nutrients. For everything else, I don't think it really makes a whole lot of difference. The, the phosphorus especially, that's just going to be in your top six inches. So 
what I would probably do is I would at least take a few spots on my farm and I would do a 6 to 12-inch sample, a 12 to 18-inch sample, and an 18 to 24-inch sample. Do some deeper samples and then you'll find out how much leaching is really going on, how much is down deeper in the soil. If you've been managing a lot of your fields the same way, what we commonly find is, well, the top six inches vary a lot in most fields. The next six, and especially that bottom six where you get to 18 to 24 inches deep, those fertility levels don't vary nearly as much from acre to acre as the variability you see in the zero to six inch samples. So that would be my suggestion. Just do a few deeper samples, and yes, we would love to see those. Thanks for the questions, Guillaume. Really appreciate that, and good luck to you. Got a question from Gary. He said, I love your show, and I also love the Ag PhD Insider magazine. I'm just curious, are there any plans for a digital edition of the magazine to make looking up old articles easier? Yep, we will absolutely be doing that in the future. Thanks, Gary. Really appreciate that. Got one from Bill here. He said, I just wanted to ask about boron a little bit and the best ways to apply it. We farm in sandy soils. We've got some samples that come back very low in boron. Uh, certain fields have tests coming back at 0.2 to 0.3 parts per million. We've tried blending some boron with phosphorus and potassium in the past, but haven't had good results. <laughs> Wondering no. what you think the best way to put it out there is. We do it separate. So either we would spread it all by itself in a regular fertilizer spreader, or if you have like a micro bin on your spreader, that is a good way to go. But you've got to keep that separate in most cases because it's a different density than you're going to find in a lot of other fertilizers. And we don't want it settling to the bottom or all ending up at the top, which means you're going to put it all out on just a few acres instead of evenly across the field. Thanks for the question. Really appreciate that, Bill. Got one here from Stanton who says, what are your thoughts on humic acid? My retailer is pushing one of their products really hard, but I can't seem to find info other than just the handouts they've given me. The label says that it may help with fertilizer efficiency. I emphasize the keyword may. <laughs> Well, Stanton, thanks for the question. Humic acid, Brian, this is something that, that we're using more on the farm, but I wouldn't say it's anything that, oh, man, if we don't have that, we're, our plans are sunk. Right. Where, where our research has shown it pays the best is when you have, I'll just be blunt, bad soil conditions. So if I've got where, where we've seen some of the best response is, let's say it's high pH soil, it's tight, it doesn't have all the right balance of nutrients we, we just we're seeing more response there where i've got the soil ph perfect i've got every nutrient perfect i've got perfect drainage we aren't seeing the same kind of response so a lot of times we talk about humic acid might even help organic matter release a little faster it, 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 like i say it it makes a lot of difference when you've got that soil ph out of balance you have all these other soil issues but it's something you can absolutely try on your farm and just prove it on your farm everybody's grounds a little bit different so we just encourage you do your own testing yes we've used some and we absolutely have seen some response so yeah if you were going to try it just try it on a small scale first try it out on your farm and and see if it works for you thanks for the question really appreciate that thanks to you for listening today be sure to join us each weekday for more ag phd radio